What you just did was selfless, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. How could we live the uh, selfless life? Uh, my wife and I attended a function the other day at the assisted living facility where my mother lives, and some of your loved ones are there as well. I know Jeannie's mom is there, and uh, we were invited family members, uh, to have a Mother's Day uh, early a brunch, and it was beautiful. There were flowers and food and all the rest, and my wife and I thought it would be a blessing to my mother if we brought our uh, grandchildren, a three-year-old boy, a two-year-old little girl, and she'd get a kick out of it, and she did. So we brought them, and we set them down at a table, and there was all kinds of great food, they took a particular liking to cherries. There were cherries available on this particular occasion, and so my wife distributed the cherries equally on their plates. So my little granddaughter had her share of cherries, and my grandson had his. Apparently, he did not think his share was adequate. And so as his little sister turned her head to and fro, he helped himself to her cherries. So this is not a good thing to do. So my wife and I spent time speaking with him about how this was not the right thing to do. In fact, it was a selfish thing. And it occurred to me, my heavens, at the ripe old age of three, he already demonstrates the human malady of selfishness. We didn't teach it to him. He sort of was born that way. And uh, we realized it's not just little ones who struggle with selfishness. Everybody, everybody here does. It's a problem. Everybody, everywhere, at every time in human history has this struggle in common. We are self-involved, self-centered, self-ish. How in the world do you break that ingrained pattern? Well, the text before us tonight addresses that very problem. It's in Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul is writing. Romans 15, verse 1. He said, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. In the prior chapter, 14, Paul expressed his deep and sincere concern for there to be good relationships amongst Christians. He found it to be inconceivable that we and the family of God would be at odds with one another when, in fact, we have a father in common. We say, our father. And so Paul is essentially saying, act like it, and don't divide over inconsequential things. That's what he said in the last chapter. In particular, he spoke there of those Christians who are strong and others who are weak, and he said, you must respect one another. Now, in the context, when he said, you who are strong, he meant those who 
were strongly able to be enveloped by God's grace. Therefore, they felt liberty in Christ in the areas of non-essential freedom simply to make their decision. They were not constricted by uh, a narrow set of rules and regulations with regard to, in their, their case, food uh, and other such, or day of worship. They just felt so overwhelmed by the grace of God, so free not to sin, but free to make choices that the scriptures don't specifically legislate against. Paul referred to those people as the strong, and the others, by contrast, he called the weak. Uh, fully saved, as saved as the strong, but just not able to experience, to enter in in full measure, to the grace of Almighty God. And so, even as saved people, these are more prone to order their lives in, uh, in light of a whole bunch of human standards. Not scriptural standards, but human standards. In Matt, they don't feel much Christian liberty. Paul referred to those as the weak. And so, in various areas, some of which we spoke about Last week, there's a difference in the way Christians approach them. For instance, uh, Bible translations. Now, uh, I don't want to make light that subject. It's huge. Uh, in truth, certain Bible translations are inferior. A and if you have one of those, you could do much better. I know that. But uh, I, I think um, what I'm having in mind are, are that those people, that group of Christians who insist a particular Bible translation is the one which is inspired and inerrant, and none other in comparison is worth wasting your time with. That's a very, very interesting and divisive, uh, not even well-founded point of view. Uh, and Paul would say, if you're strong enough to feel the liberty to benefit from uh, several of the good Bible translations, you should not be at odds with those who have a more narrow perspective on it. Uh, uh, you feel the liberty, they do not. So Bible translations. I mentioned church attire, you know, what you, what you wear to church. Some feel the freedom to dress, I hope, tastefully but casually. Others feel it's uh, uh, more appropriate to dress in a way that is more befitting of worship, you see. And, and you see, there can be antagonism between believers on that account, when in fact the scriptures do not specifically legislate a, a, a particular fashion. It does say, don't call attention to yourself and be modest and discreet, you know, all the rest. But it doesn't, the scriptures don't specifically say where this or where. It's a matter of Christian liberty. It could really cause a division, the body of Christ. How about worship styles? Oh my goodness. Wow, uh, the body of Christ is really divided over this. Now, I don't think it's a problem, do you, to have a preference for a certain worship style is over against another? I mean, that's just normal and natural. The problem gets to be when we demonize someone who has another preference, when we call that person's music of the devil because maybe it's more drum-intensive than organ-intensive. You know, I... I, it's okay to have a preference. It's not okay to um, um, elevate a personal standard to the level of a biblical standard and then to use it as a sword against others. It's just not, 
not accept. Paul says, you can have differences in these areas. He said, please, don't let them divide. Then uh, Sunday activities. Well, I, we all agree, Sunday, one of the, the primary activities to gather together as a worship community and attribute worth collectively to Almighty God. But there's a difference of um, conviction in the body of Christ about what else you can do on Sunday. Some would say uh, uh, you could take a walk in the park, you could ride a bike, you could, you could mow your lawn, you could uh, I, I shoot baskets, you could go fishing, you know, after church. Others would say, no, 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 no. This is the Lord's day, and it, has, it should be set aside uh, for Him only. And so these kinds of activities are, are prohibited. Can you see there have been differences that have divided in that particular area? Holiday observances, you know, different points of view about Christmas and Easter. Um, you know, some would, I think, accurately point out the pagan roots of both and thus say we should have nothing to do with it. And others say, oh no, the mere fact that they have pagan roots is all the more reason why we ought to take them cactus captive to the obedience of Christ. There's a big difference. Some would say, no, no, no Christmas trees, no Yule logs, none of these things. And others would say, oh, no, no, no. You were going to have them and attach a good, fresh biblical significance to them. So, you know, so there's differences about that. Food choices. Oh, my goodness. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> it's really a good idea to eat nutritious stuff, it seems to me. Try to keep the temple in shape, last as long as you can for the glory of God. But some people, I mean, can get carried away and really make you feel like a creep, you know, if, if you eat wheat. Or, I mean, that's what my wife does to me. She's, she's gluten-free, which means I am in gluten bondage. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it's okay, you have your preference, but it's not okay to go around with it as a measuring stick of spirituality. These are matters of Christian liberty. How about birth control? Wow, let's get juicy. Look, uh, some uh, have chosen uh, means of birth control they find to be consistent uh, with Scripture, and others would say, no, there is no such thing. Every means of birth control is your attempt to control uh, the process that you ought to leave in the hands of God. Well-intentioned Christians. So you see on both sides of, the, of this particular uh, issue, I'll never forget, I was a missionary overseas, and uh, I, I had met my wife, and uh, uh, she was just unbelievably attracted to me, and you, well, you, you can, no, I'm not, and uh, I, I was interested in her, and so uh, I met her at a, at a Bible study, and uh, then I decided to get counsel from those uh, who I submitted to in this missions organization, and uh, they gave good counsel, and then as we got closer to, to, to marrying, uh, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, we have to think about birth control. I've just never given it any thought. Is it, is it legal? Is it, is it biblical? Is it not? What do you do? So I studied the scriptures on this subject, and I really couldn't find, out, uh, find anything that specifically addressed the subject. So I got counsel from 12 godly people, 12. And this is interesting. Six had one position, and the other six had the opposite position. 
So I thought, what in the world is going on? I was very confused. The Bible says in abundance of counselors, there's victory. I found confusion. But I missed the point of counsel. It wasn't so that someone tells you what to do. It's so that you can see all the facets of an issue and then make your own uh, hopefully more intelligent decision. So I noticed then in the area of birth control, there's just different perspectives amongst very well-intentioned Christians. Schooling options. Oh, my goodness. Which is best, the public school, a private Christian school, the home school? You know, each can make a strong case for his or her preference, and, but it's a matter of Christian liberty. It's what the household thinks best meets their needs and corresponds to their personal convictions. But it's possible to embrace an alternative to the schooling of one's children as if it's the only way to go. Again, using it as a barometer of the spirituality of others. I wouldn't do that. Then how about this one? Tattoos. How about tattoos? Oh my goodness. I mean, some Christians um, have absolutely no problem, not with grotesque, gory, demonic stuff, but uh, uh, sometimes a, a, pass, a verse of scripture, a reference of something, who knows what? Mom, you know, something that says, Ma, who knows what? But then others feel like, are you kidding me? And you're desecrating the temple, that's the body in the Old Testament. So, you know, this is like a, you see these things? And Paul is essentially saying, not that you can't have convictions about these things, just so that you shouldn't let convictions in areas like this be a source of division in the body of Christ when the body of Christ exists to bring glory to the one and only Most High God who we all address as our Father. Uh, someone once made the comment that um, Christians are like porcupines. Isn't that a compliment? Uh, uh, like porcupines, he said, on a cold night. I mean, they gather together to warm each other up, but as they draw uh, closer and closer to each other, their prickly spines dig into each other to the extent that they have to pull apart. And that's what happens all night long with these porcupines. They're in the process of huddling together and then pulling apart, huddling together and then pulling apart. And that's what we're like. We know we have to come together because it's cold outside, and we need to generate spiritual warmth in our togetherness. But as we get closer to one another and find out what each other's convictions are in these non-essential areas, ooh, boy, that just rubs us the wrong way. We pull apart, and then we come back together, and we pull apart. And Paul is essentially saying, come on, don't do it. Get along. There is no Christian you've ever known as a Christian with whom you are totally in agreement with about everything. It's just not going to happen. You cannot find a local body of people who are in absolute agreement with you on all matters. It would just be you. It'll be no problem for you to get a seat. But Paul says that's not the way it works. We're not clones, one of the other differences are legitimate. And so Paul addresses that problem, and he puts the burden on the strong. And he says, those of you who feel more liberty in areas of Christian liberty, you stronger believers ought to serve and please the weaker ones, and here's the phrase he uses, not just please themselves. In fact, rather than doing this, strong believers are to be intent 
on pleasing others. And so it says in verse 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And uh, hey, Betsy, are you here? I thought I saw. Hey, Betsy, this is really about the conversation we had. I wasn't really, excuse us for a second. I wasn't really prepared to give a, you know, to have a good response, but this actually so, so here we go. Uh, uh, verse 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. So here's the issue. Does this mean we are to cater to the demands of narrow, difficult, uh, rigid, unyielding, unstable, domineering Christians? Uh, the answer is no. Notice what the verse says. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And it may not be good at all to let an immature, unstable, demanding Christian dominate. I mean, I just described your kids and grandkids. It is not a good child-rearing technique, is it? Though you love them to allow them to dominate you, it is an act of love to set bounds and say no to them. So, so what's good sometimes for the weaker Christian or for a young child is to do that very thing, set bounds and say no. This is surely in the best interest of our children, best interest of weaker Christians. I remember when I was a child in New York, the kids on the block who I hung out with got together, or we got together, decided, hey, let's sleep out tonight. Let's do that. But this is like urban camping, no tents or anything like that. There was a Methodist church on the block. It had a flat roof, and that's where we were going to camp out. That's New York-style camping. We, knew, we found a way to climb up on the roof, you know. I mean, what other use is there for a Methodist church? You know what I'm saying? And so, yeah. There you go. Right. <clears throat> Just to keep you awake. And so, um, so the, other, the other guy said, okay, yeah, well, I got to ask my mom. Or I got to ask my dad. I didn't have to ask either. Uh, my parents would not know if I was in the bed at night or not. My father was an alcoholic and consumed with it. It'll get you. Uh, my mother was doing everything she could to hold things together, worked in a factory, put food on the table, and all the rest. I mean, I could come and go as I pleased. I could do whatever I want. The kids thought, whoa, that is so cool. And I played along, oh, yeah, that's really cool. But inside, I felt unloved. Isn't that interesting? I wanted a bigger person to say, no, you can't. I wanted someone to be sufficiently interested in my life to guide it, bound it, say no to certain life decisions. So you see, sometimes that is the act of love for a weaker Christian. No bounds, guidelines, that, that kind of thing. There are times, however, for sure, when we ought to give up our Christian liberties and freedoms for the sake of others. For sure, we ought to be willing to give up our rights for the sake of a growing a Christian who needs 
to stay in the environment so as to grow. Paul knew people thrive and grow in an environment, not of criticism, but of love. There was a person who attended this church some time ago. She came from a different religious background and was uh, laboring, in my opinion, under the misconception that she could lose her salvation. And she frequently felt that she was. So if ever there was an altar call, she was always there to be born again and again and again and again. It was a terrible insecurity and instability. And I traced it to this person's background. It wasn't a theological issue. It was an emotional issue. She was cloning God, her father, into the image of her earthly father, who was very authoritative and authoritarian and dictatorial. And, you know, if she got uh, four A's and one B, he only saw the B. And so she felt any time she did something wrong, her heavenly father is the same way, withdrawing his love and salvation. See, she really struggled over it. So we spent some time together to talk, and I swapped some verses with her. I shared with her. She shared with me. It wasn't working at all. And then sometime later, months, maybe a year, she came to me out of the blue. She said, I got it. Got what? I got it. I understand the nature of salvation that is a free gift. I did nothing to obtain it. I do nothing to keep it. It's all of the grace of God. But how did you get that, I said. I don't know. Just being around, I think the Lord just spoke to me. Don't you see? We could say she was a weaker Sister, we could say, depending on what you think about this theological matter. And to berate her and criticize her and move her to a new decision too quickly would have run her off. Instead, um, going slow and allowing her to be in a healthy environment where she could hear truth, that's what really affected her. So Paul is saying, you stronger, if you think you're stronger, and he counted himself as one, we who are strong, he said, prove it. The way you can prove you're stronger, more mature in the faith, is give up your liberties for the sake of somebody else. Bridle your tongue for the sake of somebody else. Relax your standards in non-essential matters. Let them grow into things. Allow them the opportunity to thrive in an accepting environment. That's what he says. So catering to the demands of immature believers is not at all what Paul's talking about. That's not helpful to them. Pleasing others as an end in itself, that's not what Paul's talking about. In fact, the people pleaser is actually someone pleasing himself or herself. So I came home years ago, and uh, the boys, my three, were in the living room watching TV, and there was a sock on the floor. I told you this sock story, I think. It was a sock. Hey, boys, how you doing? Good, Dad, how you doing? Good. Guys, whose sock is that? No, nobody knew. I said, well, who, whoever it belongs to, you know, just pick it up. Put it in your room. Put it in the hamper. Okay, Dad. I came back about 15 minutes later. The sock is still there. Hadn't moved. Boys are still there. So I, I uh, you know, I, I raised the volume a little bit, just a tad bit, because I thought maybe they didn't hear. Guys, you know, we allow you to keep your rooms the way you want to, sloppy though it may be. But this is a common area. You know what a common area? It's an area in which your mother and I, we have to occupy it as well. You have no right to intrude upon our, you know, I'm going on and on. So I want that sock picked up. So I went away and came back about 20 minutes later. The sock is still there. 
but the boys are gone. <laughs> so you know what I did? I picked up the sock. You know, I just decided, ah, come on. They're kids, let me pick up the sock. Uh, you know, they'll like me. But I'll tell you what happens when you do stuff like that. Three things. One, you become angry. Why? You got your own socks to pick up. That's why. Two, they, the people whose socks you pick up, uh, they become irresponsible. Because you give them the false notion that in life, there's always going to be a sock picker-upper for them. See, but that's not reality. And then the third thing that happens is they resent you. Why do they resent you? I'm trying to please them by picking up the sock. Yeah, but you know what you're doing in picking up the sock? You're saying you can't make it without me. You cannot live life rightly without me. I have to live your life for you. I have to be responsible for you because you're not responsible enough. And I'm not going to stay here and have lectures with you and stuff like that. I'll just do this and you'll see what a great dad I am. No, that's not what Paul is talking about. People pleasing as an end in itself uh, could do much, much more harm than good. So by pleasing our neighbor, Paul, does not mean pleasing them at any cost. He doesn't mean avoiding telling them the truth. He doesn't mean avoiding confronting them at all costs. He doesn't mean keeping people from the natural consequences of their bad choices. That's called co-dependency. You see? That's not what he's talking about. In fact, it may be good for the person not to be bailed out. It may be good for the person to fail. These realities may, in fact, cause the person to become a more responsible, better decision maker. I was a missionary overseas, Germany, and I had a program on one of the army posts in Heidelberg, Germany. To do so, I had a buddy up with the chaplains. I was a civilian at that point. And so I made friends with the chaplain, and in return, he extended a meeting place and vehicles and all this stuff. Really good. And uh, lots of guys and gals were coming to Bible studies and so on. Things were going good. But they were exposed to the preaching of this chaplain, and he was, uh, he was just a liberal... Terrible. I mean, he quoted from Khalil Gibran one time. He's a, never mind, Eastern religion type. But I'm going, what in the world? I'm not going to expose my people to this nonsense. So I made friends with a Southern Baptist pastor whose church, an American, whose church was set up right outside the post. And uh, I thought, oh, my goodness. Uh, this would be great for these guys and gals. You know, they can be invited to people's homes on holidays and all the rest. And this was a good Southern Baptist preacher, theologically sound. And uh, I thought my motive was pure. So I moved everybody, all the troops in our ministry, off of this post and uh, into this Southern Baptist church. Not long after that, I got a call from the guy who was in charge of this missions organization in Europe. Stuart, this is so-and-so. I would like you to get on a train and come up to such and such place and meet with me three o'clock tomorrow. Will you be here? 
Yes, sir, I will be there. I have no idea what's up. So I go. He says, sit down. A couple other higher-ups in this organization were in the room, and they said to me, what do you, do you realize the ramifications of what you did? And I said, I don't even realize what I did, let alone the ramp. What do you mean? What are you talking about? He said, y you know, moving everybody off of this military installation into this uh, church. Do you know what it did? I said, I have no idea. It so offended the chaplain, he called the chief of chaplain in Washington, D.C., that's a two-star general, uh, to report this because his numbers have gone way down now. You see, his numbers were due to our, our group, uh, and that's what he was concerned about. So he complained. The chief of chaplains sent a letter to the head of our missions organization in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, who contacted the guy in charge in Europe and saying that guy, that young guy, Rothberg, jeopardized our international military ministry. The chief of chaplains is threatening to pull the plug and not allow us to be on any military installation anywhere in the world. Oh my goodness, that is not good. So uh, I said, well, what should I do? Should I contact the chaplain? And they said, no, 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 no. Don't go near him. He is just hot as could be. He have nothing to do with it. Okay, well, what then? And they said, uh, we think you should resign. That's what they said. I said, okay. But I said, uh, you know, I've been doing this faithfully and all the rest. Our ministry is growing. Are you sure that's the only option? I mean, can't you, like, talk to them and explain? You know, maybe it was an error of the head, but it surely wasn't an error of the heart. You know, maybe you could do that. And they said, no, we can't. You need to resign, effective immediately. So, so I did, and I was mad. And I was saying, come on, these guys are supposed to be my comrades. They deserted me just like that. It wasn't until sometime after that I realized they did it because they loved me. I really learned something that I have never forgotten to this day, and that is this. There is a way which seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. I learned, take advantage of the privilege of getting wise counsel because something could surely seem right to you and maybe you're missing something. So what they did was actually a loving thing for me by allowing me the natural, to experience the natural consequences of a very bad decision. And by the way, I think God is like this. Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. It's about my wayward people. God says, I'll go away and return to my place until they, wayward Israelites, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So can you see? God is not out to just cater to folks. Uh, he uh, is someone who loved Israel down to this very day so much that he withdrew the benefits of a relationship with him. He said, I'll go away until in the distance they may realize their wrongdoing and repent of their sin. Well, that was, you know, uh, strategy was initiated by God thousands of years ago. Has Israel come back? No. 
but it doesn't invalidate the strategy. If you really want to do something for someone's good and their edification, you do that which will encourage them to make better choices and decisions. So you don't coddle, you don't pamper, and you don't allow them to have their way. Psalm 106, verses 13 to 15. They quickly forgot his works. My people again. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. He gave them what they demanded, but then let them experience the consequences of choosing something outside of God's will. So folks, love, the kind Paul is speaking of, seeks the highest good of the one being loved, and that may mean doing that which enables that person to see the consequences of his or her bad choices. Do you remember Ed Sullivan? Years and years ago, it was on Sunday nights. Wasn't the Ed Sullivan show? Yeah, so, you mean, as a Jewish family, church didn't get in the way. And so we had Sunday nights free to watch Ed Sullivan. We would gather around the TV, and uh, he had... this one act, the plate spinners. Remember the plate spinners? These long, thin poles. And a guy would spin a plate here, pick up another plate, you know, and we'd go over here. And my sisters and I would scream out at the TV as if the guy could hear, hey, Mr. Plate number two is, you know, wobbling. And all. You know, all this kind of stuff. It just occurred to me, if you really love someone, don't let them give you their plates. You have your own to spin. Don't let them give you their agenda. Don't let weak, immature, narrow, dominating Christians set the agenda in a local church. Don't do, don't, that's not an act of love. The plates you're supposed to spin are the ones that God wants you to spin. It's his agenda, not somebody else's. You know what the Bible says? Your servants, then it says, for Jesus' sake. It doesn't say your servants for your sake. Oh, no, that's a people pleaser. A God pleaser is someone who takes the plates that God gives. And sometimes that means, don't give me that plate. I'm not going to spin that plate. That's just not what God would have me do at this particular time. Now, what is the motivation for all of this selflessness? It's given in verse 3. Even Christ didn't please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's written about King David, but Paul applies it to King Jesus. It's King Jesus speaking to his father. The reproaches of those who reproached you, father, fell on me. The Son of God came into a God-hating, God-reviling world, and the Son of God selflessly said, Father, I gladly bear the reproaches of those who reproach you. It's a reference to Psalm 69.9. Though he existed in glory from before time, and though he had fellowship, unbroken fellowship with the Father, though he was holy and innocent and above reproach, yet he gave up his liberty, his rights, his freedom for our sake. He's the premier example of selflessness. He did not seek, don't you see, to please himself. False accusations, unjustifiable 
criticism, insults, hostility, none of those things pleased him. The whip, the nails, the humiliation, the mockery, the pain, those things did not please him, but like a lamb led to the slaughter. He accepted it all to save us. So when we sacrifice our liberties for the sake of a weaker brother or sister, dare we think we are making a greater sacrifice for them than he made for us? I hope not. So when we're tempted to please self, saying, how will my church serve me this Sunday? Better to ask, how can I serve my church this Sunday? It's the example of the Lord Jesus. When we're tempted to please self rather than thinking about the building up of others, consider him who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He's the example. His selflessness is to motivate us to model the same kind of behavior in response to one another. One of the greatest witnesses to an unsaved world, which we're sorely lacking today, is the unity in the body of Christ. It's very, very important that the world see us getting down the road together in mutual admiration, submission, yieldedness to the Lord Jesus Christ. If they see us, dissension, arguments, splits, confrontations, criticism, uh, those are the same kinds of things folks out there are already acquainted with. If we can demonstrate Christ in common, it is a great, great testimony to those out there. So for the sake of the glory of our Father and His only begotten Son, let's cut each other slack. Not in areas which are essential We cannot compromise in any way on those. But in other areas, you're free to watch what you want on TV. I'm free to watch what I want. You're free to go to movies or not. You're free if you want to to smoke cigars. These are not the biggest. You're free to own a handgun. This is a big debate amongst Christians, to own a handgun or not. Come on, folks. These are all matters of Christian liberty, and I don't want to part from other Christians over those issues when I'm already apart from the surrounding culture uh, based on important issues like who is Jesus, why do I need him, what has he come to do for us. Folks, he loved us first, and therefore we love, in fact, we should sing this. Uh, let's stand together. Let's do this. Let's sing a little, a little, uh, do you know this one, Oh, How I Love Jesus? Yeah, if we do, we should love each other because, uh, you know, he, he did what was necessary for each of us to be adopted into his family, and one child can't say to the father, I, I, I'm tired of your other children. That just doesn't work. That's not the way. So, uh, If we love Jesus, we'll love one another. Let's sing this one. Oh, how I love Jesus. You know, oh, how you repeat it, and then it says, the answer, why? Because he first loved me. You see, that's the idea. We follow his example. He loved us, though we're we're not like him at all. And he essentially says, now do, do the same for one another. Let's sing. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, 
how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first... That was good. That was excellent. God bless you, folks.